Greetings. We offer these podcasts freely, and your support really makes a difference. To make a donation, please visit tarbrock.com. Namaste and good evening. When I was in my 20s, for much of that decade, I was uh, living in an ashram or spiritual community. And I've shared that I was a bit of a type A type yogi. You know, I was kind of pretty driven trying trying to reach enlightenment. I had an idea it would take about seven years, so I was trying real hard. That was not a true idea that didn't match with reality. But there was a story that um, I remember hearing early on that has stayed with me, and I share it now and then because it helps me. And it's of this musk deer who um, got a whiff of this heavenly fragrance and felt this urge to find the source of it. And it became this compelling life journey that this musk deer was always on its way trying to find the source of this incredible fragrance and it went over the tallest rocky peaks and across wide raging rivers and through dense jungle um, chasing after this sacred scent. And finally at the end of its life it was exhausted and as it was dying its horn pierced its belly and the scent absolutely filled the air. And so it is that what we are longing for is here. It's already here. It's really what we are. And yet we get caught in this idea that it's around the bend or it's down the road or it's after the three-month retreat where we've gone into the Himalayas or it's back 2,500 years ago with only special beings at another era. And um, in some ongoing way, we feel like we have this problem we have to figure out and solve before we're really there. There's always something else. How many of you can relate to this, being on your way? Okay, so here we are on our way together. And what the Buddha taught, I find it's through most spiritual traditions I've encountered, It's this radical reminder, and it really kind of cuts through, that what we seek is what we are. It's the way Kabir says, the guest I love is inside. Even when we're most neurotic, when we're feeling most confused, when we're most caught in doubt, whatever it is, when we're most stuck, we're never actually separated from the awakened heart-mind, any more than waves are separate from the ocean. It truly is already, always here. So I'm going to be referring to this as our basic goodness, and what I mean by that is the awareness, love, that's waking up through all of us. It's our essence, it expresses as waves, and the waves are conditioned, and they distract us because we think we're a particular wave, we forget what we are. And that the path really is increasingly to trust our oceanness, to include the ways and trust our oceanness. 
Tonight's reflection really is what helps us to trust this? What helps us to really trust ourselves in the deepest way? So last night, Ruth got this elegant inquiry into the depth of you know, the nature of reality. And this is kind of continuing on that, that who are we really? And I think that in terms of last night's talk, future Dharma students will consider it the discourse, the salad dressing discourse. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never think of dukkha the same, you'll see this. (laughs) So when we're in dukkha, the bigot, we are caught in doubt, and we're caught in mistrust. And I know from the groups that that's some of the deepest pain is when we feel that we really can't trust ourselves. And I think the big question comes when we hear this, this potential of can we trust our true nature is, how could I possibly trust myself? if I know that I hurt people, I have hurt people, I will continue to hurt people, how can I trust myself? You know, or the extension is how can I trust someone else if, you know, I know they're going to hurt me? So in terms of defining things, trusting goodness does not mean that we're trusting any of us not to hurt each other. It doesn't have to do with that. We're not trusting they won't have mean-spirited thoughts or act aggressively or in unkind ways. Some of you might remember one of my favorite prayers is, Dear God, so far today I've done all right. I haven't been greedy, selfish, or self-indulgent. But I'm going to get up in a few moments, God. (laughs) From then on, I'm going to need a lot of help, you know. So the given is that we have the same conditioning, the same reptilian brain and limbic system as other animals and creatures, and that under certain circumstances, all of us, most likely, will kill or steal or lie, given the circumstances. When we're threatened, most of us get defensive. A woman in a job interview. Interviewer says, tell me, what do you think your biggest character defect would be? Her reply, honesty. The interviewer says, honesty? I wouldn't consider honesty a defect. Her reply, I don't care what the hell you think. (laughs) I have to tell you, I was trying to find a way to fit that in, and I couldn't figure out why... (laughs) I just think it's so cute. (laughs) So, back to where we're really looking. We can't trust that others won't be defensive or aggressive or any of those things. But here's what we can trust. That there is an intrinsic awareness that's waking up through all these body-minds. really is, through each of us. And and it's manifesting in a way to serve our greater good because that awareness realizes our belonging. So it's expressed in love and in compassion. So how trust comes about is that we have more and more tastes of that, of that awareness and that love. And the more tastes we have, the more we start recognizing, oh, this is more home, this is more true than any of the passing condition states. And I'm going to keep looping back to that again and again. 
So I remember um, one of my very first Buddhist retreats, it was probably at IMS because that's where I always went, uh, one of the teachers was giving a talk about the nature of awareness, and he said, so, and he asked for hand raise, um, how many of you trust your Buddha nature? <laughs> and I kind of was going like this, because <laughs> a part of me was thinking, well, yeah, sure. And then, well, nah, I don't know, you know, because I was back and forth in that sense of, well, I can't trust that I'm really a good person in this way or in this way. And it's an interesting inquiry for you just to sense when you've had moments of feeling that kind of trust. Um, I think of it like we touch facets of, of that gem of awareness, whether it's maybe you had some moments of quietness and you really felt the, the basic stillness of awareness. Or moments of that, as Ruth described, that, that real wakefulness, that knowing, just knowing, receiving in the moment what was happening. Or maybe you've had moments of feeling a sense of tenderness, compassion, love. And did you sense in the moments when there was that kind of awareness, or maybe a purity of heart, that you really could trust? That there was a kind of profound okayness. So this isn't a hand-raised kind of thing, but it's just a sense, how much has trust been woven in? And then for many, and this is equally valuable, the waking up has shined a light on a kind of chronic mistrust where you have doubts. And it's not until we really get conscious and see them that we can begin to wake up out of them. So as we look at it, there's an inquiry which is what is between, like right in this moment, between me and trusting goodness. And you might ask yourself that. Is there anything between me and trusting my basic goodness, the, the awakening awareness, the awakening love that's here? And when we ask that, we might sense that we're trusting or we might sense, well, I'm, there's instead there's a feeling of fear or shame or numbness or I'm just too distracted to contact anything. And usually whatever it is that's between us and trusting, it comes with some background story of a not-okay self. So our lens for looking at trust is really that it's about identity, that when we're mistrusting, we're identified as a separate self. Even when it's not a bad separate self, if there's a feeling of a separate self, we're not going to trust ourselves because we're living in something smaller than the truth. We're living separate. One of the metaphors I use a lot is sensing that we come into this world And because the world is challenging and difficult, we construct our ego kind of spacesuit. We all, every organism does it in its own way. We toughen our skin in different ways and, and, you know, the different tools for navigating and trying to figure out what people want from us and getting acceptance and getting approval and shining up our presentation. So we develop the spacesuit. We all do it. I've sometimes described it as the coverings around the golden Buddha, you know, we develop the spacesuit, 
And the delusion comes because we get identified with the spacesuit and we forget who's looking through. And then we see another being and we forget that the coverings aren't what they are. We forget the, the consciousness, the knowing, the awareness, the love that's there. So we all, to some degree, if we're suffering, we're identified with the spacesuit. We're identified with some notion of a separate self. Is this all making, does this make sense so far? Okay. Rumi put it this way, he said, whatever comes into being gets lost in being, drunkenly forgetting its way home. So all forms, all organisms, all waves, however you want to think of it, arise and in some way have this misperception that their being is identified with that wave. There's that they forget the larger ocean that they are emerging out of temporarily. That's, we, that's getting lost. And so then drunkenly finding our way home. And here we are, <laughs> drunkenly finding our way home. So it's natural and universal to get identified as a separate self. It's not like our personal mistake, our personal problem. We all, it all happens to everyone. We get identified as a set of waves with certain defining characteristics and our path is really remembering our oceanness and cherishing the waves. The way we get stuck, what makes it hard to let go of the identity is that we have this incessant inner narrative that keeps telling us you're this set of waves and it's not a very good set of waves, you know. And, and we just keep telling ourselves it over and over again. Carlos Castaneda, the Don Juan books, puts this, he says, You talk to yourself too much. You're not unique in that. Every one of us does. We maintain our world with our inner dialogue. A man or woman of knowledge is aware that the world will change completely as soon as they stop talking to themselves. So here we are practicing and starting to shine a light on how much we're how much is going on in terms of thinking. And it's not about fighting the thoughts. You know, if we're at war with our thoughts, we'll be at war for the rest of our lives. So it's, it's not that. It's just knowing that we can wake up out of the thoughts and see them and not always be caught inside them. It's the space between the thoughts and around the thoughts that, the, that awareness shines through, that we remember the awareness that's here. So the challenge with thoughts and with thinking is that they're um, super persistent, that they're usually fear-based, and that we take them as reality. Those are the three challenges. There's a cartoon with a man at a bar, he's saying, I know I'm nothing, but I'm all I can think about, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's like we are the star of the show, and we and you know how it is. I mean, if we're, it's a little embarrassing to say, but we spend a lot of time moving through the day, and you know, it's just circling around a sense of you know moi, and so it builds that sense of separate self. And so here we start noticing those patterns, and and we start noticing the quality of the thoughts. Like, how many of them that you have during the day? arouse a sense of kindness, of belonging, of gratitude, you know? 
and more and more. We, we get more skillful as time goes on. And then we're honest when we sense, well, how many are, sent, are kind of fueling the worries and the plans and the judging that kind of reconfirms a limited threat in self? And as the Buddha said, you know, whatever a person frequently thinks and reflects on, that will become the inclination of their mind. Neurons that fire together, wired together. So, so part of our practice is we start shining a light on the thoughts that are going on, the kind of thoughts, and just the fact of thinking, and this is the most important piece, that we take them to be reality. We have a, a little film going on in our mind, and our body is believing it, having biochemistry going on because we think it's true. So, these are the challenges of the thoughts, and they perpetuate a sense of a kind of self that we are. Now, to look at the construction of identity is this huge, complex thing, and I'm going to be really simplifying, but just to say that certain kinds of thoughts create a certain sense of who we are, so that if you're moving through a lot and blaming others, there's going to be a sense of the victim self, right? And if you're going around and there's a sense of, I've got this problem, I've got that problem, you're the designated patient or the problemed person, or if it's always about your health, you know, it's all of a sudden, I'm the sick one. And I know that one. I've, I've, I've done the, I'm the sick one over a number of years. I my world got so small that became the story, right? I just kept telling myself. Cartoon, man's in heaven on an iPhone. He says, hello, doc. This is the hypochondriac. Guess where I'm calling from? <laughs> so some of our stories have some roots in whatever's going on, but often not. Sometimes our story is about being... Um, the special spiritual person, the meditator, you know? And that story separates us, too. Then we're all of a sudden the moral or the ethical one or the the cool one or the better one in certain ways. My dad, when I I got really interested in spiritual life, came home from college, I think it was junior or senior year, and here's a story he told me, because he he knew of my interests. He said, "Two, two friends were very fascinated by the metaphysical and they were focusing on what spiritual realms, the higher spiritual realms that they would visit after their death. They agreed whoever died first would contact the other and let them know what it was like. So one died, and the other did seances for months. One night at dusk, a friend's voice comes through, and he's eager. He says, well, what's it like? Tell me, tell me. And the friend says, well, we eat, and we drink, and we have sex, and we sleep, and then we eat, and we drink, and we have sex and we sleep and over and over his friend says wow heaven sounds uh, really wonderful he goes oh no 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 I'm not in heaven I'm a moose in Wyoming (laughs) (laughs) so we have these stories about how it is and about ourselves and one of the big stories for many of us is that life is hard, and it's oppressive, and we're carrying a burden, and we're grim. It's that grim, oppressed person story. I don't know if any of you know that one, but I'll tell you about my version of it. (laughs) I mean, I can easily 
get into my to-do list and start sinking. And I, right before retreat, I, um, someone from our organization sent me a letter that needed to be edited and rewritten. It was kind of substantial, like three days before she sent it to me. <laughs> so I just got into a snit because I was trying to get talks together and notes and stuff and this and that. And I was just felt my body and I got grim and I started feeling resentful and too much stuff was being poured on me. And then I saw, oh, okay, there's the oppressed person. <laughs> and I asked myself, and I do this a lot, is this really who I am? You know, am I this one? Am I the sick person? Am I the oppressed person? It's really helpful when we start catching our identity. Okay, so now I'm in the victim. And it's not like it instantly dissolves, but there's a little mindfulness that makes it so we're not quite as identified. So these are just examples of how our thoughts create our identity. And of course, as we know, it's deeply, deeply imprinted on us from our society. We have all the different ideas and standards and ways of thinking of our society that tells us who we are. I'm going to speak just a bit about this because it's a world unto itself, but I've always uh, been struck by the story of a meeting between Carl Jung and a, an indigenous chief, Ochoi, and I'm not pronouncing it right, but it happened in 1924 in New Mexico, and it was in his uh, personal memoirs, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. So he describes this conversation, and speaking of white men, the chief Ochoi told Dr. Young, their eyes have a staring expression. They're always seeking something. What are they seeking? The whites always want something. They're always uneasy and restless. We don't know what they want. We don't understand them. We think they're mad. <laughs> then Carl Jung asked him why he thought whites were all mad. And the response was, they say they think with their heads. Why, of course, said Dr. Young, surprised. What do you think with? We think here, and he put his hand over his heart. And Jung describes it, uh, that he had struck our vulnerable spot, unveiled the truth to which we are blind. So I want to slow down here because just this different description of how we think, whether it's head thinking, which is, in this context, means it's really driven by and in service of fear and greed, fear and wanting, head thinking. It's not connected up with heart, it's not integrated, it's not whole, it doesn't recognize belonging. Our heart thinking, which arises from the sense of our mutual interdependence and has a much deeper kind of intelligence. And again, I'm going to come back to these kinds of thinking because head thinking driven from fear, creates hierarchies by nature. Head thinking creates hierarchies. And it doesn't matter where we are in the hierarchy, it creates separation and fear. And so many of us here, as we sense, as we kind of are waking up more to both our personally held identity and our group identities, we have intersecting group identities. Some might be considered on the higher on the hierarchy, the dominant in terms of, let's say, race, but 
uh, not in terms, this would be me, not in terms of gender or religion being Jewish. There's all these different levels, and someone else might be, you know, in terms of sexual orientation or gender identity. So it we have intersecting identities, and they all have messages, and they all put us up or down in different ways, and they all contribute to a sense of whether we feel superior or inferior at different times, but basically separation. And just to sense that for a moment, just to experiment, you might reflect in your mind on someone here that is, in some ways, different from you. Just bring someone to mind that's in some way different from you. And then imagine if you could truly experience no better, no worse. that you are no better, you're no worse, that there's truly belonging. And then to bring another person to mind, no better, no worse, truly belonging. And what if you could move through the world and really disband some notion and they're very, sometimes it's very subtle and sometimes it's very overt of in some way being better or worse. It's not saying the same, it's saying belonging. I know for myself, I wrote this in uh, True Refuge, that about special person, like because I'm teaching a lot and I'm put in the position of knowing more or something, the subtle thing of of being above and realizing that if I in any way right this moment feel like I'm better, that's suffering because it makes me separate and it's actually a smaller identity and creates distrust. I feel like I'm worse, that's no fun either. (laughs) So anyway, that's been a powerful reflection for me, no better, no worse. It's something that um, people that do plant medicine, psychedelics, that kind of thing, the chemistry seems to deactivate the part of the brain that makes these different separations and hierarchies. Um, I remember in college uh, doing psilocybin and being with plants and totally knowing in a cellular way the belonging and that there was no better, no worse. Now I have to often re-disidentify from a hierarchy and rediscover, but it's a powerful and liberating approach to our identity, no better, no worse. So we're talking about, we get these identities, we believe in them, of course the most direct way that we develop them is in our families, uh, parents, caretakers, who in some way send the messages. You know, the, the deepest need we have, being seen and being loved. And then to the degree that our parents could mirror back our value, show us love, see our goodness, that 
allows us to relax and belong. That's basic trust. But most of us had it very conditional and to some degree had severed belonging. And you might just reflect for a moment, just as a very simple reflection, just to sense some of what fed the identity that might be most sticky for you. You might allow an image to arise of you being young and with your, whoever were your significant others, parents, caretakers, in some room where you spent time, maybe you're six, seven, eight, and see if you can dial it in a little so you can actually see where you were, see the surroundings. see your parents or caretakers there, see their faces, maybe look in their eyes so that they're looking at you. Now sense, what is it that you want them to see? What do you want them to see about you? What don't you want them to see about you? How do you want them to feel about you? What do you want them to be feeling emotionally in their heart about you? What are you afraid that they might feel about you? And just to know that the core features of identity organize around wants and fears. So to the degree that there's mistrust or severed belonging, it's the unmet needs for feeling seen and valued. So the inquiry here, open your eyes if you'd like or keep them closed, the inquiry is how we move from, to whatever degree there is, mistrust, because there's an identity and a sense of something wrong, which creates mistrust, to remembering and feeling our belonging to awareness and love, trusting that. This is a uh, quote from Sri Nisargadatta. He said, My guru told me I was the divine, the source, pure awareness itself. The guru told me I was the divine, the source, the pure awareness itself. I pondered that for several years until I knew that it was true, until I became it. Then he adds, I was lucky because I trusted what I was told. (laughs) So I'm wondering if I just said that, would that work? (laughs) I could be guru for the moment. (laughs) 
Um, but it's not just the message of a particular guru. That's the point. It's really the message, as I mentioned earlier, of the Buddha and mystics and saints through the ages. That that's what we are. And it's also, you wouldn't be here if you didn't have some deep intuitive wisdom that that's what you are and a longing to manifest it. It's in us. So the pathway of trusting and remembering is really having more and more tastes or direct experiences of our natural awareness. Just what we're doing here, the practices that allow us to relax back and deepen our attention and really taste presence and love, awakening. In the Tibetan tradition, this is my favorite to me what makes most sense, description of our natural awareness, is it's got three primary characteristics or qualities. And one of the qualities is that it's absolutely open. And another way of saying it is that it's empty, that there's no center, there's no limit, that awareness is utterly open, open and empty. And hence, because it's open and empty, you look at the altar for the Buddha over here, and maybe some people were feeling sorry for the Buddha, feeling like, how come Kuan Yin gets all the, you know, beautiful little metta, all this stuff going on over here, and the Buddha's just sitting there all alone. But that's just, it's emptiness. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to, I keep thinking we should have candles or vase or something, but I realize that's just going to be the way it is. So that's one of the qualities, is this open emptiness. The second quality is wakefulness, that awareness is inherently wakeful, as Ruth was describing so beautifully, there's that knowing quality. The third quality is the active expression, which is a tenderness that can respond so that when awareness encounters form, there's a response that's tender. And again, back to ocean and waves, when the awareness, which is source, encounters the waves that arise out of the source, It's tender because the waves belong to awareness. It's not like there's something separate. It's not dualistic. We fall in love because we realize oneness. The waves belong to us. Everything that we experience is part of our awareness. There's nothing outside awareness. So the open, empty, wakeful, and inherently tender. Now, there's many, many dimensions that get expressed from that that we encounter all the time. Gratitude. Gratitude is a pure expression of awake awareness. Compassion. Awe. Wonder. Creativity. So whenever we touch any of the facets of the gem, it's like coming home. There's something that feels completely pure and true. Now here's the key, that you have been moving through these days and each of you at moments has touched, in some way, has had a taste of natural awareness, probably many, 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 many glimpses. And yet what happens is that we are so in the habit, like the must-deer, of trying to get somewhere else that we don't arrive enough 
to really get familiar, as Jonathan was saying, with the experience so it feels like, oh yeah, I know this. This is home. This is what I am more than any of that conditioning. So the remainder of our time for this talk, I want to explore how you can move from having tastes of your true nature to having a real sense of a trust that this really is who I am. And there's a lot more science on this now, which is really interesting, that the science of going from states to traits, that you might have a state of uh, feeling compassion, but how does it become a really regularly accessible part of your being? And what a lot of neuroscience is showing is that if you have an experience of compassion and you actually stay in it and feel it and it fills you completely and you're actually aware of the experience for 15 to 30 seconds, there's more chance that it kind of, it comes in, it gets sticky and stays in your implicit memory as, oh yeah, this is part of my life experience. But if you don't really sink into it, it comes and goes and it stays like a passing state. So to turn states into traits, we need to deepen our attention to the awareness that has emerged. This is why I emphasize what we call after the rain, because during the practice of rain, you're recognizing, you're allowing, you're investigating, you're offering compassion, but it's in the moments afterward where there's that beingness, that that presence, And just to rest in it and get familiar is really like getting to know what it's like to be home. And the more you get to know what it's like to be home, the more you trust who you are. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples of this and then we'll just practice a little. And the first example is from my own life. This was the end of my ashram days. My biggest experience about trusting goodness was one of the most painful experiences I've ever had. I have had the good fortune of not having experienced abuse, except for once, and this was it. And I've written it up, and I'm going to give you a little bit more of the, um, a little more layers of this. I was 28, I was at a gathering of our spiritual community, and I had just had a miscarriage, it was two days after a miscarriage, And I had been worried that maybe the heat of the desert had, because it was very, very hot and I was outside and doing a lot of exercise had caused it. And and that was mentioned to uh, the spiritual teacher. Well, we were all gathered, and in that gathering of a couple hundred people, he had me stand up in front of everybody and and basically... um, blamed me for losing the child. He said that, you know, you're willing to have sex, but it was really your own ego that wanted to just work, and you're, you're selfish, and you didn't really care about having a child, and that killed the child. And so, as you can hear, that, that's abuse. And over the next few days, I was devastated, um, because this is my community, and this is my teacher, And I spent hours in this little gudwara. Gudwara is a a Sikh temple, but this is kind of like a one-person Sikh temple, meditating and praying. And it came down to, do I believe his condemnation of my my badness, personal badness? And remember, in the hierarchy, he had a lot of power. He was a male, and he was the top of the hierarchy. 
a lot of authority. And what he had said tapped into my own already existing identity of, of bad self, my own shame around being a driven person and being self-centered and being, you know, e- you know, egocentric and ambitious and all the things that I didn't like myself for. So it was like, well, wait a minute, is, he, is it true I'm bad? <laughs> you know. Um, and so I just meditated a lot. And the process that really turned me towards healing was, and this is why I brought up the fear thinking, as I went from all the swirl of I'm bad or am I bad or how could this happen, he wouldn't have done it if there wasn't something wrong with me, to I made a kind of U-turn. I, I, I said, okay, stop the thinking, and I went to my heart. And I knew that all I could do was be with the waves. Like I had to go under the thoughts to the waves of hurt, of grief around betrayal, the anger, the, the shame. So the process was drop the fear of thinking and just go directly into the rawness of the waves. And it was in that presence that a quality of self-compassion and tenderness emerge that became so filled with light, so full, it was so tender and so big, that I realized that this was, this was who I was. That was more true than any of the stories either of us, him or me, were telling me about me, you know? And so then the after the rain was, I just stayed a long time in that presence. I kept saying, this is it, just rest in this, just rest in this. And just to follow up on the story, the forgiveness became possible because it was just as limiting to stay in the abused victim story as it was anything else. It wasn't because, oh, he deserves to be forgiven. It was just for the freedom of my own heart. And now I can look at him and see a really a being that's very mixed, that he's not alive anymore, but him being driven by his own demons and whatever. And I left the community and I warned other people because I didn't want other people treated that way. So it was ultimately empowering and at the time devastating. And I share it because it had everything to do with the seeds of real trust. Not that I won't cause harm and haven't caused harm, but that that compassionate presence, that openness, wakefulness, tenderness, is more the truth of who I am than any of the waves. Let me invite you to reflect for a moment, if you will. One of the pathways to trusting Buddha nature is to open unconditionally to the waves. This is what we've been practicing here, that all the waves belong. So just explore that for a moment together. Utterly awake senses wide open. Just open your senses. Listening. The sounds are known. Sensations are felt. Feelings experienced. 
sensing the possibility of really letting life be just as it is. Coming out of any idea or story. This is a kind of yes to the moment that can go infinitely deep, just allowing this life right now. And you might sense, who are you when there's truly a yes to the life of the moment, to these waves right now? Who's here? And if you sense a solidity, a clutch, another wave, just opening to that. Opening and becoming the openness. in the foreground, sounds, sensations, feelings, and sensing in the background that alert inner stillness. openness that includes it all. Everything belongs. As Mark Nepo says, everything is beautiful and I am so sad. This is how the heart makes a duet of wonder and grief. The light spraying through the lace of the fern is as delicate as the fibers of memory forming their web around the knot in my throat. The breeze makes the birds move from branch to branch as this ache makes me look for those I've lost in the next room, in the next song, in the laugh of the next stranger. In the very center, under it all, we have that no one can take away and all that we've lost face each other. It is there that I'm adrift, feeling punctured by a holiness that exists inside everything. I am so sad and everything is beautiful. So one of the pathways to discovering the awareness, openness and tenderness that's what we are is through the waves. The other pathway These are the two wings, mindfulness and love. The other pathway is directing our attention to remember love. To remember love. And this is what we do with our heart practices. We're shifting on purpose from fear thinking, the head thinking, to the kind of heart thinking that helps us reconnect with that belonging that's always here to reconnect and dissolve that small self-identity. 
So we can sense it some in the groups when we get together and there's that shared vulnerability. And then we start sensing that when we're all holding a space for that, we become that tender space. And that deepens trust. And then in our daily life, this is where we can really find the trust gets very, very much kind of integrated into our being. All the moments of giving and receiving, when we can, in those moments, in our consciousness, sense, oh, we, it's we, that larger space. It could be the gestures, the smiles, the the little bit of the melting of the heart, and sometimes it's dramatic, but it's the connections with each other that truly help us to trust who we really are. So a story, and then we'll be closing for you, that shows that to me was such a, it's a, such a beautiful example of how in relating we can go beyond the small self-identity. And this is a, a story told by Terry Dobson, who's was an American, a white American in Japan studying Aikido. This is decades ago. And Aikido is the art of reconciliation, and, and really the idea is that whoever has the mind to fight has broken their connection with the universe. But Terry was studying Aikido, and while he saw the wisdom of this, he really wanted to prove himself physically. So he still got the identity of this young, tough guy. And so one afternoon he's on a train, and a large, dirty, drunk man in labor's clothing boards and starts yelling. And he's violent and he's cursing and he's swinging his fists around and he knocks a young woman with a baby into the laps of an elderly couple. So he's this violent guy. And Terry figures, okay, this is my chance. I'm going to show this guy. Uh, He felt tough and holy, basically. (laughs) So he's going to put an end to this guy's violence. And so he stood up and he's going to step in and the drunk guy saw him. And so now he focuses all his yelling at, at Terry. He says, you're going to get a lesson. Terry gave him a look of disgust to egg him on. And the guy's about to rush at him when, enter someone else. An old man in a kimono calls out, hey. And then he beckons the drunk man to come over to him. And at first the drunk's belligerent, you know, why the hell should I talk to you? The old man just beams, no fear, resentment. His eyes are sparkling with interest. He asks him what he was drinking and just starts talking to him. The old man tells the laborer about how every evening, sitting in the garden with his wife drinking sake, and how he looks at their persimmon tree and goes on and on, and the drunk's bewildered. He goes, well, I like sake too. And the old man says, I'm sure you have a wonderful wife too. No, replies the laborer to this so strangely friendly man in a soft, sullen voice. My wife, she died last year. And suddenly, changed drunk hung his head in heavy sorrow. And gently swaying with the motion of the train, this big burly man who was so threatening just moments ago began to sob. I don't got no wife. I don't got no home anymore. I lost my job. I don't got no money. I don't got nowhere to go. I'm so ashamed of myself. Big tears are rolling down his cheeks. A spasm of pure despair ripples through his body. My, my, the elderly man says with a heartfelt care, yet undiminished delight. That's very difficult predicament indeed. Sit down here and tell me about it. 
So Terry turned his head for one last time before, because he's leaving the train now, and the laborer was sprawled like a sack on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was looking down at him with a smiling compassion, his hand stroking the filthy, matted head of this confused soul. So Terry describes leaving the train dazed. What he had wanted to do with muscle and meanness have been accomplished with a few kind words. Whatever we practice gets stronger. And if our identity is such that we practice controlling or pushing around or judging, that gets stronger. But if our muscles that we're building, which is what we're doing here together, is to remember care, remember that each person is struggling a hard struggle, that it's hard to be alive, remembering our shared vulnerability, remembering the goodness, then our way of reaching out to each other will keep deepening our sense of connection and trust. There's a way in which we all have to find our metta practice, our way of remembering remembering love, whatever really opens our heart, whatever helps us to trust. I remember um, last time I was at the forest refuge. For me, I was, I was sitting at a table and uh, there was an elderly gentleman at the table and he looked really grim and beleaguered in his own way. And I remember in my mind's eye giving him a kiss on the brow, like just offering him a blessing, giving him a kiss on the brow and feeling this sense of immediate open-heartedness and connection. And then I started in my mind's eye going around this silent retreat. And you don't look at people directly in the eye, but I kept imagining I was kissing everyone on the brow. And and they became more than... I mean, they became dear friends, you know, in the silence. And then in my meditation, I started bringing people up in my life. And I'd imagine kissing them on the brow or touching them on the brow, whatever, and having them offer the same blessing to me. And the sense of tenderness and belonging was so profound that it was another one of those deepenings in trusting the purity of heart. And so I really invite you to experiment and find the way of remembering love that warms your heart because it will help you trust your heart. And we each deep down really want to trust the goodness of our hearts. So our final reflection, if you will, is to close your eyes. And bringing to mind someone you love, where it's kind of uncomplicated, it's easy to love them. Sense them right here so you can really feel and sense and remember all the goodness that you're loving. 
how they are when they're expressing love to you, their aliveness, their mischievousness, their intelligence, their basic goodness. And in some way communicate your care. Just imagine yourself doing it. It might be through words like thank you or I love you. It might be a kiss on the brow. It might be some energetic expression. Letting it be tender. and sense them receiving it, really receiving it. Perhaps you could take a moment to imagine reciprocally their expression of love to you and letting yourself receive it. and feeling the heart space that opens up. And you just might ask yourself, who am I when this heart is open? Srinasargadatta says, Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. These final moments, you might sense this oceanness, this field of awareness, cherishing the waves so that whatever comes up regarding holding as part of your being, that it belongs, there's nothing wrong, that there's a natural tenderness and presence with this changing life.
Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. May we trust who we are. Many blessings. Thank you. For more talks and meditations, and to learn about my schedule or join my email list, please visit tarabrock.com.